the only way to score is of course to play uh, with a handbrake off. I'm Ian Stone. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast for The Athletic. I'm joined this week by the writers for The Athletic, James McNicholas and Amy Lawrence. Hello, guys. Hello. Hello, guys. And our very special guest this week, following on from the ledge, that is David Seaman. It's another Arsenal legend goalkeeper. That's right. They're like buses. You wait for ages and then two come along at once. 308 appearances for the Arsenal. It's Mr. Bob Wilson. Hello, Bob. Hello. Hello, everybody. That's uh, an interesting thing you've just said there. Can I just pick you up on that? 308 appearances. Okay, go on. <laughs> That's first team appearances. You know, the actual appearances in an Arsenal jersey with that gun on my chest was 536. And the other 310 in the first team, actually, or 308 or 310, the rest I was in the stiffs. But they all count, Bob. I think they all count, Amy. <laughs> I mean, they don't have a reserve team anymore. But, um, yeah, I mean, for me, it was uh, a lot of excitement when I arrived as the amateur school teacher. I don't think you'll see that in the modern game anymore. And um, and then it was a two and a half year wait before things happened. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, Bob, we'll redo the opening <laughs> with the correct number of appearances. But before we get into what we want to talk about today, because uh, today, recording day, Tuesday, the 28th of April, Exactly 50 years ago to the day since Arsenal won their first European trophy, the Fairs Cup, on, I'm told, a pulsating night at Highbury. And we're going to talk about that in some detail in a moment. Before we do that, we thought it'd be good to get the guests to give us their favourite moment at Highbury. Uh, Amy, we'll start with you. I'm sure there's loads. Have you narrowed it down to three or four? <laughs> do you know, as we've got such a special guest on today, I'm going to keep it brief. My favourite is actually not involving a game. Um the last ever day of Highbury, uh, I'm sure everyone will remember the Arsenal-Wigan match and uh, Lasagna Gate and finishing above Tottenham and a Champions League final to come. Uh, but uh, like a lot of people actually leaving and saying goodbye to Highbury was an impossible thing, uh, an intolerable thing. And, and uh, at the end of all the celebrations, just having to kind of be told quite quickly, actually, by the stewards on the day to go home was really difficult and uh, I didn't feel like I'd been able to say my proper goodbye and I was sat at home lived nearby feeling really really upset and I had a phone call from someone saying there's a few of us still here if you um if you come back to the press entrance the doors open you can come back in so I ran back down the road and and uh, nipped back into Highbury in the evening um and there was about 30 or 40 people still knocking around mostly staff uh and a few pals and we kind of ran around like idiots uh, on the pitch. I remember taking my shoes and socks off and took a really rudimentary mobile phone picture of my foot on the centre circle. We went into the dressing rooms. We went up the marble halls. I went and had one last sit down in my season ticket seat and looked at the view with no one else around in an empty hybrid. And it was a, it was a beautiful way. For, and I felt very privileged to be able to say goodbye like in my own time. So probably that. It's going to be hard to top that, James. That was that was that was beautiful, really. James, what have you got for us? I, I can't top that, really. I mean, I funnily enough, although it's sort of one of my saddest memories, I was also thinking of talking about that last day at Highbury. You know, that summer, two thousand six, I turned twenty, and consequently, my memories of Highbury are sort of really associated with my childhood, my adolescence, and it, it's a particularly special place to me for that reason. And I actually wasn't a season ticket holder at the time, and it was. 
I was very, very lucky to be there in that at that final game. Uh, C. Thierry already scored that hat trick, and I'll always remember those players sat in the centre circle, looking around at that old place and thinking what it meant to them. It was a really, really special day, a sad day, but one that I have really fond memories of too. Bob, what about you? I mean, you had so many great days and nights at Highbury, and I mean that was your life, really. So what? What, do you have one special moment? We're not, by the way, we're going to talk about the Arsenal and the game in a bit, so don't choose that. But do you have any other moments where you think, wow, that was just amazing? Well, I mean, definitely the, the personal, the very personal moment for me, <clears throat> remembering my sort of uh, strange way into the game as the amateur that I was. And it was definitely once I had got myself established uh, it was during the double year and we were playing Manchester United and we started the season with a draw at Everton, went to West Ham on a Tuesday night, drew again and we were placing, we're facing Manchester United, George Best, Dennis Law, um, all of them, Paddy Creran, you, you imagine. And it was the fact that it was against Bestie and it was a one against one situation and I know that 999 times out of a thousand he would have scored. But I had this way of diving headlong at a guy's feet. I was waiting just for a little miscontrol and I had a hero, Bert Troutman, who famously broke his neck in the 1956 Cup final and he was my hero and he used to dive head first and although it, I sustained all sorts of injuries. It was the fact that George was through on his own. It was nil-nil. Um, it was a big moment and um, I got it right. Um, very famously, when George and I were interviewed about it a little bit, later on in my life, this is your life programme actually, uh, it was brought up and uh, George came very, <laughs> in typical fashion, came out, said that I don't remember anything whatsoever about that moment, but Bob will tell you how many were in the crowd, what the, <laughs> what the sun was like, what the pitch was like. And uh, yeah, he could see the, he was mad as blazes, I know, I know that. But that that was a personal moment, and um, I think I think the saddest moment for me, and it was a, a tearful moment, was the leaving. And I know um, on the week leading up to it, when I was coaching the goalies at the time, my part-time sort of role, um, job-wise, and Thierry came, Thierry Henry came up and said, "I now realise just what this place means to you." And I've always said, I mean, I was at Loughborough when. When uh, Bertie Mee, who was the physio, said um, to Billy Wright, look, we've got this nutter of a goalie in the British University side and I think he's got a chance. And I skipped off university at Loughborough and I came down on one afternoon and I've always said I walked into the marble halls and sort of was amazed. And then Billy Wright took me to the dressing rooms, then they, all the way down the tunnel onto the pitch and I always, uh, rather over-dramatically maybe, have said, I stood in the middle of the pitch and I looked at the, the east stand and the west stand and I looked at the clock end and I looked at the north bank and I thought I, it was more to me like a cathedral than it was a football ground because I'd never, ever seen a football ground quite like Highbury. I mean, this is what's interesting about all the answers. It almost feels like there's a communion thing going on and I sort of... I must admit, I feel the same way about the last day, watching that game and then going up to the back of the um, the stand and looking out and seeing the new stadium. And that did fill me with, with a certain excitement. But, of course, it was a sad day to be leaving. Um, no one else, by the way, has mentioned games particularly. Um, I do remember Tony Adams scoring a volley against Spurs on a very wet night in 96. 
And the same game, by the way, Ian Wright's cross for Burkamp's that touch and then that goal. I, I just remember celebrating that day and that evening and, and just loving seeing the, the, the old ground um, looking the way it did that night. So um, we are going to talk, by the way, about one of the most famous nights, possibly the most famous night that ever uh, we ever had at Highbury. At the end of a 17-year period when Arsenal hadn't won a single trophy, they'd lost two League Cup finals to Leeds and Swindon in the previous two years. Um, I mean, Bob, when did, with that run in the, um, in the uh, Fairs Cup, when did the team start to believe they had a serious chance in that competition? Because you beat, you know, Ajax in the semi-final and then Andlecht in the final. These were two great teams. But when did it start to occur to you, we, we've got a serious chance of winning this trophy? I think uh, I, I've always said that the inspiration for our five or six years of finishing um, first or second in a major competition came really from losing the two League Cup finals, particularly the one against Swindon, on a pitch that you would never, the game would never have been allowed in the modern game. Uh, it had been the Horse of the Year show the couple of nights before. But I remember, you know, there was so much despondency. I mean, I cannot, <laughs> I wouldn't like to tell you just how bad the lads were that evening. But from that moment, it was a case of, we're going to prove you wrong. And we thought we were quite close and they actually made quite some big decisions and two or three players left and Suddenly, it was a blend of the older players, Frank and myself, Frank McClintock, our captain and myself, and then bringing in youngsters like Pat Rice and Ray Kennedy and uh, Charlie George. And it suddenly, you know, we're getting there. We are getting there. Um, but on that, the path to the final, and of course, as each year went by, as you say, you know, we're talking about a club that had won you know, been champions of England three years running in the 30s and with all the traditions and everything else. But it was 17 years, as you say, before we before we actually got this. You know, we did it the, the wrong way because we were 3-1 down from the first leg. Um, I missed the first two or three games because I'd broken my arm previous season at the end of the season against Burnley. And so um, Jeff Barnett was very important within that early run because he made a penalty save. I know, I think it was against Sporting Portugal. Portugal, yeah. Um, and he made a very important save. And then I came back by November. I was back in the side again. And it was just the, the teams got better and better. We played Ruan and then Dynamo back out. But it was the Ajax game that I think was one of the reasons we suddenly real, realised we were becoming a very, very good team. This was a, an Ajax side with Cruyff, and everybody knew they were about to, well, they were already producing amazing performances. And they went on, obviously, to win the European Cup three years running. And, um, and, and to beat them 3-0 at home in what was the semi-final, I think that was a very, very significant moment for us. We lost 1-0 away, but obviously we were through. Were through. Were um, through. And then just to face the champions that were the Belgian champions, Anderlecht, who were a terrific side as well. And that really was the, you know, it, it, it just built and built, but it was six or seven years of finishing first or second in a major competition. James, one of the things that you, you mentioned before, uh, before we started the show um, was about losing that League, that League Cup final to Swindon the year before. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I 
I wondered how sort of heavy those scars were, Bob. How 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 much of a motivating factor did that one match provide for this team? I think it was the. I think it's what made us, the senior players, made us more of men. Uh, I, you know, I've, I've spoken to Frank McClintock this morning to say, Frank, can you remember where you were 50 years ago <laughs> today? And he said, was I picking up a trophy? <laughs> um, and I can tell you that on the Swindon game, at the final whistle, when we saw we saw Swindon, you know, they they adapted to the conditions and they deserved to win it the way they won it and everything. But we were standing there with our tankards, which was our runners-up trophies. And I remember standing in the middle of the pitch and uh, Frank hurling his, he just hurled it. And he said, not another, I can't use one word, not another <laughs> what's it yeah. trophy. I'm absolutely convinced that it was that day and the response of the press who really slaughtered us. The shame of North London, the sh- you know, those were the headlines. And it was a like, like getting together plus the brilliance of, Bertie Mee, the officer and the gentleman, and a br- an incredible coach, Don Howe. And Don Howe, he was the one who said, look, guys, we're getting close here. And um, they they gave the confidence to those young kids to come into the side, Charlie and Pat and Ray Kennedy um, it, it, and Sammy Nelson, those sort of guys. And suddenly it turned everything and we we became such a... It, to me, it was like a jigsaw puzzle, smooth pieces, rough pieces, and we all fitted together. We had a camaraderie, which was second to none. Yeah. I think we would all do anything for each other. And that was that, over the next two or three years when things really took off. I mean, I'm told, Amy, I was, we were looking at the, uh, the WhatsApp feed that we have for Handbrake, and it's, it says it's one of your mastermind specialist subjects. Well, I mean, yeah. it, it, essentially, you know quite a lot about this <laughs> run and this game. You were telling us about the quarterfinal as well. Well, um, uh, I suppose it's a, a sign of how different European football is that nowadays everybody knows all about each other and it doesn't feel quite like such adventures into the unknown. But... Um, I remember, I think, Geordie Armstrong telling me about how he felt going to Dinamo Bacow in Romania in, back in the 70s. And it was a real eye-opener to go and travel to a country like that that was quite closed. There was a lot of you know, poverty, the like of which people weren't used to seeing. There was also a hero's welcome for the Arsenal team um, with thousands and thousands at the airport. And even when Arsenal won the game in Romania, they were applauded with a fantastic rapture rapturous reception of the pitch by the locals so I guess it was a different sort of experience uh, Bob do you, do you look back on it and think that it was a something as a team where you were you know you were able to do things ordinary people weren't doing yeah I mean there was Amy it was an amazing response from the people out there <clears throat> I also remember something Arsenal always I like to think can, can be one step ahead of the game at times I think that's the game where I remember the the club were unsure about what the food would be like. <laughs> and uh, the club took our own chef out there. Um, I'm certain that was the game where we went, took our own chef, made sure that we ate the right sort of things. Uh, because even then, I mean, it's very, very different now, ever since Arsene arrived, food and what you eat. But even then, the, the sort of food we ate, you know, it was very um, simple really simple sort of food, carbohydrates and all that sort of thing. But that that particular game was just on the road 
to achieving what we did that particular year and certainly the following year or two. And um, yeah, I, 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 I think the fact that we won out there, didn't concede, we won 2-0. Um, and I mean, such an amazing win when we came back home. I think we scored six or seven on the way when we came home. Um, and then and then that satches up for what was clearly, clearly going to be one of the greatest sides ever seen in Europe, the one led by Johan Cruyff. Well, led, I mean, captaincy and, uh, and his ability. Yeah, the thing about the final that is a really famous factor, um, which I think people who don't know about it really need to know, is if you picture the scene of, it's a two-legged affair, uh, first final in, 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 of this nature, going away from home to an amazing side and being 3-0 down against Anderlecht. And then getting a consolation goal late in the day with a header from Ray Kennedy. And by the sounds of it, the players trudged in. They've lost the final in 1968. They've lost the final in 1969 against third division Swindon. And here we are, 3-0 down effectively at half-time with one consolation back, thinking, here we go again. And then what happens next changes everything. I spoke to the man who inspired us this morning. I spoke to our skipper. I mean, they played brilliantly out there, Anderlecht. They were champions. They were one of the great sides alongside Ajax at the time, which is an emerging side. And um, they had two very famous players at the time, Paul van Himpst and uh, Jan Mulder. Jan Mulder being a, a Dutchman, by the way. He was almost, they used to think he was as good as Cruyff. And we, we deservedly, we were deservedly beaten. But Ray Kennedy's goal when he came on and scored, we went in the dressing room. And I, I, I mean, it was a morgue. It's the only way to begin with. And everybody was silent and not even Don Howe or Bertie could find right sort of words. And we went off into the showers. And the worst one affected was definitely our skipper, Frank McClintock. I mean, you could not get a word out of him. You know, he, I mean, he just had his head down. I think he was speaking to himself, but with very bad Glasgow language. And suddenly from nowhere... I mean, I've always called it a Braveheart moment of Frank. He came out shouting. That means if we win 2-0, we win, don't we? 2-0, we can do 2-0. We can definitely win 2-0 at Highbury. And he started on, he went, he went off on one. And we, in turn, came out and just let him rant. And it was like, we can do this. We can, uh, you know, and again, the language was quite blue. And... It was one of the most inspirational moments I ever remember. It was a skipper realizing that he had to do something to lift what was it seemed a, a seemingly impossible position. And as you say, Amy, having had two League Cup final defeats, and I've always thought that that was one of the greatest moments for Frank as a leader. Just proved just how great he was, and set us up for what was to come the following year. It's a moment that I will never, ever forget. Frank, Frank's quite funny about it because he doesn't even remember throwing that tankard into the mud at Wembley. And, and he, he always, he quite, I think he quite likes me to remind him about how he went off on one in the dressing room in Brussels. So, you're set up for the final. Uh, a week later, was it, uh, in, uh, at uh, Highbury? And uh, you know that 2-0 is going to be enough and you're pumped up from uh, from what Frank McClintock said and the pain of losing to Swindon uh, the year before. And I was wondering about the atmosphere at Highbury. I mean, I know we've all 
had discussions with with non-Arsenal supporting uh, fans who just who have a go at Highbury and say it was the library and all the rest of it. But the atmosphere that night, Bob, you were the only one out of all of us who were there. Have you ever experienced anything like that? No, I, I mean, the only the only moment that came as regards noise, but it was a sustained noise for 90 minutes plus, you know, another half hour, 45 minutes after that, when we were running around with the trophy. The only other time I remember a noise, anything like the sustained noise of Highbury on that night, and Bertie, me, by the way, had warned us, was when we walked out against Liverpool to win the double the following year. And he'd come out with us, he warned us all. He said, listen, guys, remember what it's like when you hit daylight from the tunnel, you will be hit by a cacophony of sound. One or two of the lads weren't sure what cacophony meant. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, he was right. And the only from the time we emerged from the dressing rooms down the tunnel, right the way through the game, Don Howe, by the way, had come up with these tactics and said, look, I want you to throw as many, many crosses into their box early in the game. But without, you've got to keep the defensive. We cannot let a goal in. We cannot let a goal in early. The game is dead, you know, so you've got to do that. But... From wherever you are, knock these balls into the box. And George Armstrong was amazing with that. Um, I think it's one of the game, best games ever I saw Eddie Kelly play. He was, you know, just a teenager at the time. But Don's, uh, Don's orders were, look, early on, just bombard them with crosses. And, and it created the crowd. Oh, it was just like a machine gun, this this attack, 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 attack. And it was a sustained attack for 90 minutes against a side that were champions of their country, but had within it such a dangerous forward line, particularly with the two I mentioned, Mulder and Van Himst. You know, I had very, very, when I look over the 90 minutes and recall it, okay, I had, I had even in, even in when you win a game really comfortably, a goalkeeper is always going to have a minimum six probably important saves to make. And on that night, there was lady luck as well, because on one occasion, I was beaten by the shot. It hit the post and rebounded back into my arms. I mean, if that had gone in and it was we were not winning 3-0 at the time, I think Anderlecht would pro probably have won the game. Um, but it was the way it happened. It was the fact that, you know, we. I think it was... Minute-wise, to get the reasonably early goal that Eddie Kelly scored, um, a priceless sort of first goal there, and then it was half-time, look, you only need one more goal. People tend to forget, you need only one more goal because you'll win on the fact you've got the away goal. Away goals, yeah. And then <laughs> the fact that it was only 20 minutes to go when... Raddy scored and, and scored his header and uh, Bob McNabb, I think it was, who, who crossed Great the ball cross. and, Great and John cross. Radford headed home. And then from then, all hell broke loose. It was it was just, again, I don't think ever Highbury had ever witnessed that. I think it was over 50,000 people there because obviously it wasn't all seating at that time. And uh, I think it was, you know, we were able to have over 50,000 people just crammed in. And then John Samuels, who was so underrated as an Arsenal player, I mean, that goal that came just very, very quickly after Raddy's second goal. And then I think it was that was the dangerous moment from then on. We had to then, we had to be sort of 15 minutes in which we had to make sure that we did not let them score. And it was the crowd, there's no doubt whatsoever, 
how crowds can affect players and the way they play, the way they react, um, the personal feeling that you can have. Uh, they can lift you and, and, you know, you dream as a kid of wanting to be a footballer and you love playing the game of football. But in the end, ultimately, you're sustained by those who believe in you, both in your teammates and, of course, in the supporters of that particular club. And we happen to be playing for one of the greatest clubs in the history in this country. You know, we are third in line in trophies, as it were, behind Liverpool and Man United. But we remain one of the great one of the greatest uh, clubs, not only in the country, but in the world. A couple of notes about the game. Um, Frank McClintock was quite interesting about Mulder and Van Himst, saying you needed eyes in your ass to keep tabs on them, <laughs> is what he said. <laughs> um, and he also, by the way, the other interesting thing... You missed was, out a couple of swear words there. He also apparently, at half-time, when the teams came out for the second half, and like you say, you're 1-0 up, trying to get the second goal and it was just quite a little quiet when he came out when they came out and he turned to the north bank waved his fist furiously and said you keep the bloody noise up and i think those things that connection with the crowd that he had i didn't see him play that often but he obviously was an inspirational captain i know you talk about him quite a lot and that night that run as well that semi-final team talk it seems to me he was crucial in all this he was listen he was he was so so crucial what you had to remember about frank mcclintock frank mcclintock was born in the gorbals in glasgow uh, i can remember him saying about being brought up and he and his sisters i think lived in the same bedroom as it were as their mum and dad you know and 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 frank had this incredible incredible sort of mind always about never being defeated, you know, that always there was going to be a challenge in his life. And um, there is no doubt whatsoever that the way he went about with the guys was, he was in your face. If you did not like your captain coming right up within an inch or two of you and almost spittle on your, you know, coming into your face. In other words, I'm saying to you, if I didn't come for a cross that Frank thought I should come for, he would be so close in my face, Willow, you are... A, and, 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 like, you know, I mean, even <laughs> yep. to this day, I remember him screaming and yelling at me. I mean, in the cup final where we eventually won the double, I cannot tell you the look that he gave me when I let Steve Highway score that goal, the first goal <laughs> which put Liverpool ahead. So Frank had that. And if you couldn't cope with that, yeah. you, were, you, were, you weren't going to make it. And, and, and I think one or two players... You know, he didn't think about the popularity. It wasn't about popularity. It was about being a leader. We are going to war, if you like, in on the football field. It's a silly thing to say, war, probably. But Frank was inspirational in the way he went about inspiring his team to win trophies. And, the, you know, he became Football of the Year a year later. And, wow, there's never been a more deserving Football of the Year. Oh, that's just amazing. It reminds me, um, uh, just talking about Frank's legendary inspirational qualities. Many years ago, I went to interview him at his house. And uh, it was one of the few times when I've been interviewing someone that I actually, <laughs> sounds uh, completely absurd, but I felt like almost I could be a footballer if he told me, <laughs> told me what to do. If, at one point... Of course you could, Amy. <laughs> well, no, no, there's a few, few little issues there, but... Um, 
at one point the, so, so the conversation went to golf one of his other passions and uh, before I knew it he grabbed a golf club and and we were in the hallway where there's like a carpet in the hallway and he was like sort of instructing me what to do how to hit a, a golf shot and making me try and do it in his hallway on the on the carpet and again you know this the, the idiocy of the situation but you felt I can do this like if Frank tells you something to do you can do it <clears throat> and uh, he really is a, a remarkable uh, a chap who whose place and I think that the Arsenal pantheon is is so important because the history is important and I was looking and Bob and I were talking about this um, yesterday. He found, and he might tell you a little bit about this, a, a wonderful old black and white photograph of him jumping high up in midair when probably the th third goal goes in at the other That's end. That's right. And, 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 and there's the floodlights streaming in from the left-hand side and the, 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 the grainy kind of black and white quality of the picture. And you see some of the video and you, and you see the crowd, the, 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 the way the crowd is... Um, is, is is swaying and moving and there's toilet rolls being thrown, you know, yeah. as they were in those days. I've actually, and... Amy, I've actually posted <laughs> that picture today, or Meg's house. Ah, <laughs> uh, brilliant. I got Meg's to post it and uh, I put the little trophy, which was a replica of the of the trophy that we won, the Intercity Fairs Cup trophy. Um, so it's me with that picture, which uh, is a very enlarged picture of it. And it's exactly as it said, it's like a shaft of light coming in from the left-hand side onto the pitch, not just from the floodlights. It's it's almost as if this is the rebirth of Arsenal Football Club after 17 long years in the wilderness. And, uh, it, I mean, for me, uh, I'm obviously in the foreground because I am jumping high and you can see the arms of the other guys, of our guys, going up. A little bit premature because, yes, it was the third goal and we still had the 10 minutes to go. Um, but, again, obviously... Amazing memory for me personally. And there's Bob. another photo of Frank uh, mobbed because the crowd, oh. you know, came on the pitch uh, at oh. the end in an old-fashioned pitch invasion, and he's held on the, the, the crowd's shoulders, with it's beautiful, the, isn't hoisting it? The, the the trophy. And I think it's one of those things that you know. I remember growing up. Um, my fascination with this game is I wasn't. I, I was born a little, little after, but it's like. The heritage and the history passed down and you have to learn about these things to kind of really earn your stripes as a as a fan and as someone who, who's buying into the club and I always thought that was one I wished I could have been at because anybody who was I've heard it many 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 times is that you know they call it Highbury's greatest night or Highbury's greatest match yeah. or Highbury's greatest occasion and um, we all spoke at the beginning of the show about how much Highbury meant as a place, as a cathedral, as a sort of place of spiritual worship that means something to all of us. And Highbury's greatest moment, wow, I can only, I can only imagine that it must have been euphoric and amazing. Amy, would you experience. believe I have one regret of that night? I swapped my jersey. We finished, the whistle went. Were you absolutely euphoric? And... We're sort of consoling the Anderlecht guys, you know, to a degree. I mean, you know, it was total respect. I think they respected us. Even the big names there were respecting us. And there's a goalkeeper's union without any doubt. So I found my way to Jean Trapenier. That was his name in goal for Anderlecht. And I was in this lovely Arsenal jersey with the gun on it, you know, which... You, you know, it was such a great symbol for a club to have that. Um, and I, and he, he came up to me and he was congratulating. He was really good. And 
And he said, I, I have your jersey, please. I have your jersey. And, uh, you know, I didn't think twice about it. I mean, I was in cuckoo land at this time. And I took off my jersey because I've always treasured the cup final jersey from the following year. And I gave him my jersey. And in return, he gave me his jersey, which was, in fact, a Fred Perry short-sleeved tennis shirt. <laughs> you wouldn't believe that, would you? But I'm promising you it's got, you know, I've seen the picture of it since Antrepenier has that, the little crest on, which was a Fred Perry, short sleeve black. I mean, you know, great for going on the beach in the Algarve or yeah. something. But <laughs> And and I, I've always, I've you know, certain things that, well, I have, you know, my eldest son, John, has my cup final jersey now and Robert has... Uh, my international jersey when I was <laughs> eventually picked for Scotland. But uh, I, that is my one regret of that evening. And it left me, by the way, it left me naked from the waist upwards. And um, I think there were two of us, George Graham and I were the two that managed to get the whole way round the pitch because there was an invasion and it was fabulous to have that. But we were determined... You know, we were going to make the most of the moment. Certainly for me, the amateur school teacher who'd come good, I was going to make the most of the moment. And I, I kept going and I kept being slapped and slapped and slapped. And I think I got in the dressing room a good 15 minutes after the final whistle, if not more. And by which time I was, I was just, you know, you can imagine the top half of my body was as red as the Arsenal shirt. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was a moment that, you know, meant so so much to me personally, having had the journey that I had had, you know, the unusual journey, jersey, a journey of, you know, being, you know, my dad not letting me be a professional footballer when I was uh, 16, 15, 16, and then eventually getting there at an age of about 28, I think it was at the time, 28 or 29. Incredible and an arduous journey for you, Bob, but also for that team who had been through those final defeats. And that celebration must have meant so much. Once you got off the pitch and away from the fans, did it continue? You know, was there big celebrations continuing after that? Yeah, I, it, it, I mean, it was. It was absolutely crazy. It wasn't as crazy as the night the night the following year after we'd gone to Tottenham and won on the Monday night just five days before the cup final. I mean, to win at Tottenham and win the league there on that night, uh, that was <laughs> a very, very famous or infamous night in Southgate following that game. <laughs> um, but it, it, I think it was there, was, a, there was a mixture of, I mean, elation and total relief that... You know, we were not, we weren't always destined to be runners up, number two, number two. You know, there's the old saying, isn't there, that nobody remembers who, who came second, whatever it be, whether it be in athletics, in tennis, whether it be in football or anything like that. And so, I mean, we, we then, there was a lot of hugging, you know, a lot of hugging. I mean, nowadays there's a lot more hugging with manhood than there was in, in those days. But Not the moment, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, sadly, sadly not. You're absolutely right. Yeah. I'm definitely missing the hugging, hugging of family and family and friends. But it's great now. I mean, I had a call. I had a call just before we we started this from Pat Rice. Uh, I mean, I rang Frank. I particularly wanted to ring Frank this morning. 
I wanted to speak to him and speak about 50 years ago and then and and he you know he he he's great he had a smile and a laugh and then Pat Rice rang me and uh, and so we once again you know it, this is the the camaraderie and the family we were supposed today on this very day the very day the very date that we won it 50 years ago tonight and today we were going to have this celebration in the director's lounge at Arsenal, a, a quite a, a, you know, reasonably quiet affair, but involving all those of us who are left, because you've got to remember there are one or two who, who are no longer with us, and one or two who are not particularly very well. So it was going to be the players and their wives, and the club do all these sort of things in a really good way. So we're still going to have this celebration as long, you know, and as soon as we can, I know, once we get out of the lockdown that we're facing. And um, it was a huge moment in the history of Arsenal Football Club for a club like ours to go 17 years, as one of the books that was written about it called it The Big Sleep. And, um, yeah, I mean, for me, I still dream anyway that, you know, I still have have to pinch myself and and find out, you know, am I dreaming that these things happen to me? But... They happen for me and they happen for these incredible guys that I played alongside. Bob, I mean, just when you look at your entirety of your Arsenal career, and this was obviously fairly early in it for you, but to be a player and then come back and be on the coaching staff under both George Graham and then Arsene Wenger, can you kind of um, put in perspective uh, how things changed and how the, you know, the Arsenal that you that you were a part of towards the end in the great Wenger era, you know, what what was what was the things that stick in your mind about that compared to those those early days as a player when you're experiencing experiencing things more directly? Well, Amy, I mean, it's a great question. It's one for me that is is so embedded in my mind as well. You, we've just mentioned Pat Rice, so I want to take you back to, you know, when Arsene arrived at the club and. Um, I'm I'm absolutely now, when I think back, I, I'm amazed that he didn't walk out when he spent his first day at Highbury and then was met on the steps of the famous ground by a press that were asking him some very, very unfortunate and misdirected questions, you know? But anyway, the following morning, I, I wasn't there on the day at Highbury, but the following morning... I, I, I've done my television slot because I used to get up at 20 past four to do my breakfast news at the Beeb and everything. And I went up to training to train the goalies because you got to remember there were no goalie coaches at the time. George had realised that I wanted to sort of start goalkeeping coaching. And anyway, I was up there and suddenly Pat Rice walked in with this gentleman with the spectacles on and... I mean, I was a school teacher, so I know Peter, he's been referred to. And he came in and Pat said something rather nice about me and said, oh, you'll not get a, a, a bigger Arsenal fan or somebody who loves the club more than this guy, Mr. Wenger. This is, this is Bob Wilson and he's our goalkeeping coach. And I think he was quite surprised there was such a thing as a goalkeeping coach. So we were introduced and we sort of shook hands and he was being shown round what was our training ground at the time. The training ground that uh, Watford still train on is University College of London training ground that we had had as a, that was where Arsenal were. I mean, we couldn't train on a Wednesday because they had to use it for their particular, you know, it, it seemed crazy that a club like Arsenal did not have a personalised training ground. 
And I remember him shaking hands and saying hello, and, and it was all pretty formal. And I did learn from him later that he'd gone to Highbury and fallen in love with Highbury from the time he went there, from the, from the very first day. But here on set day two, he's gone from the marble halls and the iconic ground that was Highbury to this training ground that was a university training ground. And um, he came in afterwards and I, you know, I saw him after he'd done this little brief tour and he was shaking his head. And it was like, uh, you know, what's up? Something's happened here. And it, and it was basically, I do not understand. This is Arsenal. I do not understand. And he didn't, I don't think at the time he had any awareness prior to his arriving that morning at the training ground that we had, in fact, no personalized training ground. And that then became the moment without any question whatsoever, when the brain of Arsene Wenger clicked into, okay, I will, I will cope with this as I go along here, and great things happened immediately, as you all know, and with winning things. But from that moment, Arsene Wenger, he loved Highbury, but ultimately thought that we couldn't exist on 38,000, which was a seating capacity, you know, that we had to have a new ground. But it was also the moment when his first directive to the board and fair dues to the board for taking him on was we've got to have our own training ground and i know i talked to him about it and and you know and it, almost immediately the board came on board as it were and and said yeah okay okay we'll go along with this and then the london coney the, the magnificent training ground that then every major major club tried to copy even one of them tried to actually buy it. <laughs> um, and it was Arsene's, you know, incredible vision for a club that already had a great history. People tend to forget that Arsenal won the title three, three years running in the, it was in the 30s, but why not? And so it was from that moment that you saw this incredible brain, because he is, he's one of the brightest men that I've ever met in my life. And he already... Within a, I think within a, within a matter of hours, certainly within a matter of days of him arriving at London Coney on that University College of London training ground, was um, immediately onto the board to say we're going to build the training ground. And then from that, it was a realisation, which I know because we talked about it and I talked about it with him, if we want to try and maintain, you know, up there with Manchester United, 75,000, with Real Madrid, with Barcelona. We cannot do it in a crowd of 38,000. And everything he, he seemed to say was something that he, he followed through on and which ultimately led to the incredible 19 years. I don't think ever any other club had been in the top, you know, in the Champions League, as it were, for 19 years other than Arsene and Arsenal. And, and I mean, almost everything that he did, he always was thinking forward, forward thinking on his food, forward thinking on his training. I mean, we would need two days for me to tell you about the how the, the change in food and the pastors and the training regimes that he introduced. And these guys, some of whom were serious drinkers, bought into Arsene's philosophy. Bob, we were very lucky last week to have another great Arsenal goalkeeper on the show. We had David Seaman with us uh, and he talked about working with you. I, I just wanted to ask you for a bit of insight on what it was like for you to coach David. And given that goalkeeping coaches were, you know, a rarity at that time, how did you go about developing 
a program? Well, I mean, that's where my dad, you know, in, in, in turning down my signing for Matt Busby and the Busby Babes, which is what I did when I was an England schoolboy, Nobby Styles and I were the two that they went for. And then my dad said, oh, oh, son, you know, football's not a proper job. You've got to get a proper job if you get a proper job and, and everything else like that. And so um, I went to Loughborough University and I studied physical education and history. So teacher, coach, coach, teacher, no difference whatsoever. You are a teacher in whatever, you know. And I, I fell in love with goalkeeping from being a kid. I had my idols and a particular great idol um, in Bert Troutman. And so, you know, for me, it was never a problem transferring. It, took, it was a problem becoming a, the professional footballer first time, but it was never a problem coming up with the idea of just, you know, we had we had coaches for outfield players, but we didn't have coaches for goalkeepers. So it, for me, it was a, a simple transition, really. And once Terry Neal, who became manager at Arsenal, realised, he said, Willow, you know, I know you've been a teacher. Will you come and coach? Now, you know, I mean, I, I, I coached at the club for 28 years and... Um, and I did it, you know, I mean, I, I wasn't on the payroll. I was, um, my job was on the telly at the time. And I did it until Arsene came. I wasn't on the payroll as a goalkeeping coach. But, you know, I, I loved every minute of it. And I'm, I'm thrilled that so many clubs have taken it up. Um, but I also had, and this is coming down, taking a long time to get to your point. You can imagine me, first of all, Terry Neal bought Pat Jennings who I used to face on the field, was there on the night that we won at Tottenham, by the way, but one of the great, great goalkeepers in the true meaning of the word that you will ever, ever come across, Pat Jennings, one of the most naturally gifted. And the only guy who's ever come close, in my thinking, to Pat Jennings' style, in confidence and this big word as a goalkeeper, because... I was a nervous goalie and I played in a nervous way and okay, I had a suicidal way of playing. But Pat Jennings had what I can only describe as presence. And the only other goalkeeper I saw with a similar presence going into that goal mouth before a game when you've got the crowds there and they're all expectant and everything and inside your stomach you're, you're a bag of nerves. And the only two that had this presence that sort of exuded this, I'm on a stage here now, I'm at the Royal Vic or I'm at the, this is what I chose, was David Seaman. And I, I recognised that from the time Don Howe asked me to go off on my day, on my day, one day a week I had off. I used to go to Queen's Park Rangers and coach David. And it was from there that George Graham asked me, he said, Willow, you, you coaching David Seaman? I said, well, yes, he's, he's different. He'll be the next England goalie without any question. I did, I, right from the, the start, I said, George, you're not even taking a risk with this guy. This guy is amazing. He is Pat Jennings part two, if you like. Um, and so George had a, a contractual issue with John Lukic at the time, who I'd had a wonderful time with. And as you know, I mean, we'll all remember Amy, you know, particularly with the, with the famous conclusion of that season at Liverpool that finished at Liverpool but um, David in the end came to Arsenal and um, he already knew me and from then on it was just a case of 
making sure that he fulfilled the potential that was within him. And that applies to any goalkeeper anywhere, all the great, great goalkeepers. You know, that you, you have a certain ability, you have a certain style of playing. My style, for instance, would never work with Pat Jennings, and Pat Jennings' style would never work with me individually. And indeed, my style would never work with David Seaman. But, I, it, I mean, to, to work with Pat Jennings, I never taught Pat Jennings anything. All I, I mean, he was just a natural. And the only thing I can say about that I gave to Pat Jennings was that at 33 or 34, he was saying to me, and I can't do the Irish accent, by the way. He said, you know, Bob, I, you know, I'm, I'm nearly finished now. I ain't got, I'm not much longer left in the game and everything. And a great big deep voice Pat had. And the one thing I think I gave to Pat Jennings, um, which he acknowledges, is that he retired on his 41st birthday playing in the World Cup for Northern Ireland. And he was a, a phenomenal goalkeeper, one of the greats of all time. But I put David Seaman right up against it. And in Arsenal terms, thinking back to Jack Kelsey, who was there at the club when I arrived, he had to retire because of injury and, and obviously then had the shop at the ground and everything. But if you put, Pat, uh, if you put um, Jack Kelsey in there, as, as most people do as one of the, the goalkeeping greats of Arsenal, David Seaman has won more trophies than any other goalkeeper Arsenal have ever had. Uh, and he has never, ever changed in personality. Even now, after winning ten, nine or ten major trophies, runner-up in four or five more, you can be with him in a crowd and he gets wellied by the same questions. David, what were you doing with the Ronald Ronaldo, Ronaldinho goal? What were you doing in that? European final when Naeem scored from the halfway line. Well, he didn't quite score from the halfway line. I know what he was doing. He was playing percentages, and which you have to do when people in a certain position, is this going to be a cross? I'm going to just buy a yard or two. And on both occasions, although, you know, although he got blamed and still gets blamed for that, even a television advert showing it, which is frightening, on an advert like it, but he has never, ever done anything when when challenged with that, what were you doing, David, when that, and I've been in his company so much, and he just, you get that big laugh, that Rotherham laugh, <laughs> yeah, well, okay, and he just passes it off, and he has that ability, and uh, I mean, great England goalkeeper, 75 caps for England, the, the goalkeeper of the tournament in Euro 96, Arsenal's greatest ever goalkeeper, in my view. Bob, this is maybe a bit of a slightly delicate uh, change of direction, but did Arsene Wenger have a bit of a blind spot when it came to keepers? Because obviously after so many years of, of some long-term outstanding goalies for Arsenal, it was a position that um, after David Seaman left, and a, a small period with, with Jens Lehmann coming in and becoming invincible, maybe it's been harder to get those sort of first-rate, uh, authoritative, outstanding, flaw almost flawless goalies uh, since then. Yeah, the only thing I'd pick you up on, Amy, is there is no such thing as a flawless goalkeeper. <laughs> <laughs> the floor opens up for goalkeepers, Amy. You know, I mean... 
I, I go to my grave with everybody asking me about the Steve Highway goal. David Seaman, the same. You know, and we have to accept that. If you can win trophies along the way, great. And those who understand the game of football understand that there is... You have chosen the most ridiculous position in a team of 11. I don't think Arsene ever, ever failed... Uh, only in in that he wouldn't be able to get the person that he particularly wanted. I mean, what you have to remember, without any doubt, is that Jens Lehmann, and he is a character and a half, Jens, he did something that no other goalkeeper in the history game has done. I'm talking about in the English league, and that is to go 49 games without losing, being on the losing side. I think there's no goalie who doesn't wake up in the morning having played really well for four, five, six games on the bounce and doesn't wake up thinking, oh, God, I've had a clean sheet there and uh, no goals in for the last four games. You know, will it happen today? And Jens Lehmann did that for incredible 49 games. And yeah, OK, it was, you know, he had his, um, how can I describe it? Crazy moments? Yeah, well, when <laughs> I say crazy, eccentric is probably... <laughs> eccentric the mad is German is what we used to call him, the mad he, German. Yeah. We all thought he was crazy. Yeah, and I mean, everybody remembers that, that day at Tottenham when, you know, when we won the league. Thankfully, yeah. we won the league there and, and could have relaxed immediately, lost the game in the last few. I mean, so Jens I put in, and I, I, I can remember the day that he was going to leave the club. And I, I particularly decided I needed to go up and say, look, Jens, I need you to understand I'm an Arsenal man through and through. I love this club. Without Arsenal Football Club, there is no Bob Wilson. Bit dramatic, I know. But I said, I went up there and I said, look, you've achieved something that no goalkeeper in the history of the game. I had to come and thank you and shake your hand. Because you've got to remember, I didn't coach Jens. Jerry, Jerry Payton had come in by then because I finished, you know, on the year leading up to the invincible year. And so Jerry did a damn sight better job than me, obviously. Um, and, and so, you know, Jens has got to be mentioned in there in amongst them. And uh, Arsene, Arsene, I think we had one or two promising youngsters who either through injury You've got to be very fortunate through injury, whatever. And then, I mean, ultimately, you know who the best goalkeepers are and who you would, who you would spend a lot of money trying to, to get to. And, and then that comes down to the monetary side. Look at Liverpool now. Look at, Man look at Manchester City and look at the goalkeepers they've bought. And, but have a look at how much money they spent to get them. And can our club now, can Arsenal Football Club, are they prepared to pay that sort of money for a goalkeeper? Um, you know, I, I'm not sure. If I, can just, if I can just tell you a little bit about Jens, one final thing which I said I was going to do. We had that pre-season game, Amy, which, you, which you, you all know, you know, the charity game. And that was two years ago, I think it was now, not, not the last one, but two years ago. Jens, Jens is playing, and this is Jens' competitive spirit. And Jens, as I have put it, eccentricity. So we're winning the game and we're going to win the game comfortably. I think it was probably against Inter Milan or whatever it was. Well Their old boys as well. And they got a penalty towards the end of the game. And it wasn't going to mean anything. I think by then we were 3-0 or 4-0 up. And the penalty's taken and Jens 
makes a fantastic save, but parries it out. But he's gone full length and parried it out. And one of the opposition's come in and knocked it in the back of the net. We've won the game comfortably. It's all over. It's for charity. It's for the Arsenal Foundation, of which I'm proud to be an ambassador. And we go in the dressing room. Well done, guys. Everybody shaking hands, whatever. And suddenly, Jens Lehmann walked in. And he's, he's shouting, where is the people? I want to know where is the people? Jens, what do, you, what do you mean, where is the people? I make the save and you all stand around, you know. And he was still competing. That was Jens Lehmann's competitive spirit. The fact that nobody had reacted quicker than one of the opposition to knock in this goal in a charity game in front of 60,000 people. And it... To me, it was the moment that made me think, you know, this guy, it just shows you goalkeepers are made of all sorts of different things. And this is Jens Lehmann definitely for me goes down as one of the great goalkeepers, certainly in the history of Arsenal, but I think possibly in the history of the game. I mean, we could sit here for another two or three hours listening to this stuff. I mean, we got you on for all sorts of reasons, but particularly because of the, uh, it's the fact that it's the anniversary of the Anderlecht game. And hearing you um, reminisce about that has just been amazing. Bob, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us. Bob Wilson. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. Thanks so much, Bob. Okay. okay. Uh, that was amazing uh, from Bob Wilson talking about the Anderlecht game. Um, well, I want to have uh, a quick chat with you guys about what you've written for The Athletic this week. Uh, Amy... Uh, you wrote a piece, it was meant to be North London Derby Day uh, the other day, wasn't it? And you wrote a piece about that. And it really, I was there. I was there as soon as you were talking about it. Oh, thank you. Um, I right. wish we were there. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> Which is no, what you were it saying. Was, um, they, they rang up from HQ and said, well, it would have been North London Derby, the first North London Derby at, at the new uh, White Hart Lane this weekend. So can you do something about what it's like going to North London Derbies? At which point I thought... Well, this is awkward because I can't really say what I, what I want to say in public. Um, but anybody who has uh, who has walked that walk up uh, Seven Sisters Road uh, for a night game um, or tried to get out in one piece will know how um, hairy and uh, uh, unseemly an experience that can be. Do I miss it? Uh, of course. Um, but do I miss going to those games? Mm, they're, they're, they're definitely on the on the extreme end of as as anxious and torturous you ever feel as a football fan i generally feel with north london derbies they're only enjoyable when they're over if you've won um it is true you're just of, waiting for the end aren't you really pretty much it's only one or two games that i could think of for particularly a couple of home games that have been sort of surprisingly comfortable and you feel with 10 or 20 minutes to go well they're not coming back from that and then well, hey, it's proper party time but on the whole it's just like you just feel like your you, your your world is incredibly oppressive and horrible for you know all day leading up to it, and then most of the ninety minutes of the game, I'd say. <laughs> James, even the five twos. I mean, we had the pain of going two 0 down twice, didn't we? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's relief at full time if you've won, but oh, <laughs> I dread them. I dread them in the run up. I think we all do. Um, you wrote about Nicholas Anelka, one of um one of regret really, but Bob Wilson was talking about the training ground uh, and and he paid for that anti Henri. That's true. I suppose we owe him for that. But it's a strange 
basically occupies in Arsenal history in some ways between Ian Wright and Thierry Henry. I do think in talent terms, he really was close to those guys. I mean, particularly in that 98-99 season, he just exploded and was phenomenal. And a real shame that it ended when it did. I think, you know, he has expressed in the years since that he has some regrets about leaving Arsenal when he did it. You know, I think he played for about 13 clubs in the end, never really settled anywhere despite a pretty impressive goal-scoring record. Uh, and you do wonder what he might have achieved had, it, had he stayed in North London. I mean, I mean, listen, you can read uh, uh, James and Amy's article. Uh, you can enjoy The Athletic for free for 90 days by going to uh, theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod. That's theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod. Nicholas and Elka was fantastic when he turned up, Amy, but it, it I mean, it, it beautiful memories he left, but, but not for very long. True, but I mean, I do remember thinking holy whatever like to see a player like that at the age of 17 do what he could do I thought he was a stunning footballer when he first emerged um, and it, it was one of those things coming quite quickly after a, like, sort of a relatively young um, Patrick Vieira who turned up and was like nothing you'd ever seen before and you thought it's Arsene Wenger guys finding these players that you've, <laughs> you've never yes. seen anything like them and they're like kids uh, yeah. it, it felt it, it, I think it generated it was the, really the start of giving him that credibility where you thought, I trust this man with anything because he just knows. Right. So the whole Arsene knows thing, I think, is really connected with those kind of players who were, you know, incontrovertibly down to his vision and his connections and him believing in young talent. Uh, let's have a song. Let's have a song from you guys. Um, I was wondering about something from 50 years ago. What have you got, Amy? Well, I, I, I thought I would choose a pop song. Um, that would have been in the Eurovision because we're thinking about Europe and that Icelandic entry to the Eurovision Song Contest this year that isn't happening is phenomenal. Uh, it's called <laughs> Think About Things. Yes. And this is a time for thinking about things. Bob Wilson has helped us think about things and it's just a great little clip of pop music. Oh, you are yet to learn how to speak. When we first met, I will never forget. Because even though I didn't know you yet, James? I mean, it's a great song. I don't think I'll, I'll cover the better track than that. Do you know the biggest hit of 1970, I looked it up, was actually Elvis Presley, The Wonder of You, which they later tried to apply at the Emirates Stadium. Who knew that? But uh, I went for Suede, Europe is Our Playground. Great. Um, as Bob was talking about Frank McClintock and saying what a leader he was, I'll have uh, Old Flower of Scotland. <laughs> what a <Yeah>, Nice. <laughs> <laughs> just because it seems like he was one of the main reasons uh, that we won that trophy 50 years ago. Uh, thanks again to Bob Wilson uh, for coming on the show. This has been Handbrake Off, the uh, Arsenal podcast for The Athletic. Thanks to Amy and James as well. Uh, thank you, guys. Look after yourselves. Mm -hmm.